Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv, where we have an open discussion on biblical topics and questions from the audience. And we invite you to participate in the discussion with your comments and questions. If you're joining us from the BibleQuest.tv app, please be sure to open the Q&A window to send in your questions. And if you're watching from Stephen's Facebook page, please post your questions in the comments box. Uh, today, maybe I had a little bit of a rough start which we hope we will resolve that, because today we have a technical webcast engineer, Noah Andrews, who's going to be helping us with these things, as well as monitor the questions coming in. This is our first time with uh, Noah. Hi, Noah. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, glad I can help. Uh, our panelists uh, are Scott from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, but Scott is not with us at the moment. He's having computer issues, and he said he might be able to join us in a few minutes, but also from Gettysburg is Stephen. Hi, Stephen. How are you doing? Hey, Drew. Doing well. Okay. And, and uh, Jeff Smelter, he's back with us uh, now. Uh, he was away from us for a few weeks, but glad to see you back, Jeff, from Exton, Pennsylvania. How are you doing, Jeff? Hey, very good. It's good to be back with you. Uh, we're so happy you are. And, uh, and I'm your host, Drew DeGrado from Honesdale, Pennsylvania. Again, welcome to everybody. And we do want to hear from you. We have a couple of questions that we're going to start with today. Right, Stephen? What's, what's our first question we have? So our first question for today, um, let me pull that up real quick, is, <clears throat> um, and Drew, I think you actually have the full question from this one. Oh, so I do. You're right. It would be graven images and consistency in the scriptures. Yeah, let me see. If I, you know, I just read that when I looked at it. Hold on a second. All right, since God uh, commanded his people not to make any graven image in the law of Moses, right? Ten Commandments. With respect towards worshiping him, why did he have them make golden cherubs for the ark and the golden serpent that he had Moses make for the people to turn their eyes towards to be saved from those plagues? Wow, very good question. He said that the question asked, the person asked the question, is that showing a inconsistency? Yeah, I can understand why somebody would ask that question. Um, because if you think about the tabernacle and the cherubim above the Ark of the Covenants, there's a representation of seemingly heavenly creatures. And then in the bronze serpent uh, story of Numbers 21, you've got a representation of a creature on the earth. Um, and yet God says, don't make graven images, something engraved or carved out of stone. Just, just for what it's worth, out where I live in Lancaster County in Amish country, one of the reasons, as I understand it, that the Amish don't want to have their photos taken is they, they believe that is equivalent to a graven image. And maybe there's an observation here that will kind of help get us to the answer to the question, and that is what they misunderstand is God was not making a blanket um, condemnation of any representation of some animal or some creature. He was specifically warning the people, uh, don't worship something else and don't create an image of something to worship something else. And the, state, the statement is in Exodus, the 20th chapter. We can go into it in detail, um, but it's in verse 4. And then in verse 5, he says, for, uh, or he says, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God. There's can you repeat the, that the reference again? Exodus yep. chapter 20, verse 4 is where it says not to make a graven image. You shall not make for yourself an idol, the New American Standard says, or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath 
or in the water under the earth. And then the, the next verse, verse 5 says, You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So here is this idea of God being a jealous God, meaning he insists that we just we worship him. And the, the condemnation of the graven images was uh, condemnation of things that would take away from worshiping God. But we may have some other things to say about that. Yeah, I think it's really interesting uh, to think about that. And it's really important, uh, just as we approach a question like this, to understand that there are times in the scriptures where there's an apparent contradiction and we want to give a fair hearing to those things. Uh, we believe that God's word is inspired and it's not going to contradict itself. And so what we want to ask is, okay, well, is there a misunderstanding in one or more of these passages? What does the passage actually say? Who's he talking to? What's the context? Uh, so that we can kind of back up and understand there are so many times where people will bring these uh, alleged biblical contradictions when there's oftentimes a very simple answer. Uh, yes, let, 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 let me uh, add to that thought um, to explain how we had, what goes on here. Many times people that point out so-called discrepancies or Bible contradictions, it usually comes from a critic to try to discredit the Bible. And therefore, they don't go deep into the explanations or the possibilities. On the other hand, this particular question came from a Christian who's not doing it for that reason. Uh, she's sincere in this question, like, how do you explain that when a critic may bring that to your attention? That, so yeah. both sides of the fence can ask these type of questions. It's the motivation or the reason why. And like you had said, we believe the Word of God is His Word. And if there is a problem, it's not necessarily with Him. It's with me first. Let me see if I'm misunderstanding it. Uh, I, I interrupted you, Jeff. What were you going to say? No, no, you guys are making good points, and I think it's worth dwelling on. And, and, I, and I do, I do uh, appreciate the fact that our caller is asking with the best of motivation. Uh, but it, it is worth noting that people can come at this with two different mindsets. And it, it just put it in terms of your boss. Say your boss tells you one thing, and then your boss tells you something that seems to contradict it. Now, you can go at that with two mindsets. You can go at that with, hey, uh, boss, I, I'm not sure what you're wanting me to do here. You, I thought you said that, and then I understood you to say this, and I, I really need to understand how to reconcile these so I make sure I'm doing what you want me to do. Or you can come at that and say to your boss uh, with a very accusatory kind of demeanor, say, well, you said this, and now you said that, so I don't think I can believe, believe a thing you say. And I'm walking uh, yeah. out of here because you said that. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good analogy. <laughs> All right. You're probably not going to keep that job very long if you do that. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Or, I mean, a third option is you could, uh, you know, take whichever of the things he said that's more convenient for you, ignore the other one, and just run with it. <laughs> you're not wanting to actually obey the boss. You're just wanting to do what you want to do. And so you'll take his statements out of context and of what you know he really wants. Uh, Scott, Scott, yeah. Scott Smeltzer just was able to join us. Scott, we apologize for your absence when we first started the show. Glad you're able to join us and got the technical issues up and running. You weren't here when we started the first question. We're talking about that question of graven images. You're familiar with the question that we talked about, about how God uh, doesn't want man to make, uh, his people to make graven images, but yet he gave them the cherub to make for the Ark of the Covenant. And the and the and the gold serpent. Now we didn't talk about it too much in detail, did we, uh, Jeff? You were you were starting to, but we and we hadn't even gotten to the bronze serpent at all yet. And that's worth talking about. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, so let's set that story up real quickly. Although we've got a question coming in here in connection with this conversation, so maybe let's work this into it. Very good question. Yeah. What is that one, John? Is it a graven image if God commanded it? Was the prohibition to make graven images at least partly because anything we could make would be from our own minds and imagining from our own minds? Well, uh, there's kind of two parts to that question. The first part, is it a graven image if God commanded it? Yes, a uh, graven image is just something that's, you know, it's an, it's an image engraved in, on stone or something like that. In other words, it's made with our hands, right, Jeff? Yeah, but, mm -hmm. but clearly the point in, in Exodus chapter 20, let's just read it more carefully and more thoroughly. I'm going to start in verse 3 of Exodus chapter 20 this time. You shall not make, or, or um, yeah, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Right there, he's setting the context. That's what this is about, not having other gods before me. Now he's going to give a specific. You shall not make for yourselves an idol, and this is the New American Standard reading, but more literally, perhaps, it's a graven image, or at least that's certainly the way it's translated in some translations. My version here says carved image. Yes, Carved yeah. image. There you go. So, so we could... We could take the, the viewer's question, is it a carved image if God commanded it? If God commanded to carve something, is it a carved image? Yeah, it's a carved image. But the context here has been established. Don't have other gods before me. And now the specific. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, a graved image, uh, uh, or engraved image, or an idol, or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, or I the Lord your God am a jealous God, and so on. So before he makes the statement about the graven images and after, it's said in that context, don't worship somebody other than me. Um, so that's what he's talking about. He's not just it's not just a prohibition against any representation of some kind of an animal or even some kind of spiritual being necessarily. All right. Yeah. So before we get to the uh, the serpents that Mo the, the the golden serpent that Moses raised, let's talk about the cherubim. Yeah. Right. So that's over in in Exodus twenty five is where we read about that. And Exodus twenty five, uh, uh, we'll begin reading. He starts talking about the Ark of the Covenant in verse ten. Uh, but verse 17, he starts to talk specifically about what they call the mercy seat. So this is Exodus 25, verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, make one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So these are clearly... Heavenly beings. Yes. This is also one of the descriptors of not to make a carved image, whether it be heavenly beings or not. Mm -hmm. But God is commanding this. So take it from there. 
That's right. And so I think the distinction we see here is that these cherubim are not an image meant to represent God himself, but they are creatures that are serving God, that are in God's presence. I think it's notable as we think about this image of God's servants surrounding his presence and being part of almost an extension of God's glory, um, that uh, it's interesting if we just follow that pattern kind of through the Old Testament. Uh, we're going to see later on when the temple is built uh, that the, the veil has cherubim uh, woven into it, the, the walls of the tabernacle, the door, or excuse me, the walls of the temple, the door of the temple were to have uh, cherubim and also like pomegranates and things like that uh, carved into them. That and kind of just, sounds very artistic. Yes. And, and the, the, in, in Exodus for the tabernacle and later for the temple, uh, specifically for the tabernacle, it talks about Aholiab and Bezalel, the two men who the Lord blessed to have the technical skill to be able to carve and do all the ornate things that, uh, that they needed for the, for the tabernacle. Um, kind of a cool section there. But we want to ask the question, what's, what's the point of all of that? Uh, is this a contradiction? Is, is, is God going back? Is he reneging on his uh, rule about no graven images? But as we think about that idea of what, would, what were they supposed to think about when they saw the image of these cherubim or when they saw on the walls or, or, or on the veil, is they're not thinking that, oh, that's God, but they're to think about the servants that God has in his presence day and night going forth from before him. That God has these legions of angelic beings at his command uh, who, who will do whatever he wants them to do. Uh, he's referred to sometimes as the Lord of hosts. That's kind of the idea. He's, he's the Lord yeah. of armies. Right. Uh, and Jeff, do you have a thought on that? Well, yeah, that, as you were developing that thought, that's where my mind was going. This expression sometimes is represented as Lord Sabaoth, and sometimes people miss the significance of that because they think it's just saying Lord Sabbath or Lord of the Sabbath. But it's a different word, uh, Sabaoth, the, the Hebrew expression meaning host or of hosts, the Lord of hosts. It is emphasizing his vast army. It's a word that's also used of human armies, uh, the, the host that could be referring to some human army coming up against the Israelites or whatever, but God has his host, his army. And so I think, I think you make a good point when you say uh, perhaps that when you see these representations in the temple, it is to call to mind the resources that our God has not to yeah. say uh, worship these images. Now that's a right. good point. I, I didn't look at it from that point before, because if you didn't have that, and we didn't talk about these cherubs and other angels, we wouldn't know that such a host exists. All right, they're invisible to us. And, and we see the curtain pulled back every once in a while. I think about Elisha and the, uh, Elisha's servant there in Second Kings, I think it's chapter 6. Yep, chapter 6. Where, where the city is surrounded by the armies coming after Elisha. And Elisha says, don't, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And he prays to God, says, Lord, open the eyes of this servant. And he opens his eyes, and around that army are the horses and chariots of fire all around that army. Mm -hmm. And so just because we can't see them, that does not mean that they are any less real. Um, and they are God's messengers, God's servants sent out to do his bidding. 
And so it's, when you ask this question, well, oh, how is God so great? Where are all the people serving him? Well, there's, there's more than we can count, uh, but yeah. just because we can't see them doesn't mean they're not there. And so those, these would be a visual reminder of God's servants. As we think about this image, we were studying Ezekiel uh, last year in a Bible class, and I, it was an interesting connection. In Ezekiel chapter 1, we have this glorious image of God's throne, and there are four creatures that we find out later are cherubim. Uh, I believe in chapter 10, they're referred to as cherubim. And they're supporting this expanse, and God's throne is on this expanse. One thing that I found interesting about that was that these cherubim, that whole image put together of these cherubim that can go anywhere they want to go, uh, up and down and the wheel within a wheel and things like that, uh, this kind of omnipresent picture uh, of, of God's mobile throne. It would have been somewhat similar to what people in the ancient Near East were used to. If, you, if you've ever seen those pictures of the king and how did the king get around if he yeah, wanted to get sure. around in style. He's in his chariot, but his chariot many times was carried by his servants. Like they're underneath him. He's up on his throne on a platform and there's the people underneath him carrying him around. And similarly, how was the Ark of the Covenant transported you had four of the priests now it wasn't a platform they held with the poles but you got four servants carrying mm-hmm. kind of this picture of god's throne and the cherubim are pictured um you know they're the mercy seat god so to speak he's above that he's not the graven image but it represents kind of his parade his, his uh his servants coming in and, and, and his mobile chariot throne kind of coming in. And so I think that's one thing that we're supposed to see with these, uh, with these particular images. We've got a couple of questions that have just come in. Um, About the you know, cherub, in fact. In fact, one is asking, what is a cherubim? <clears throat> yeah, so a cherubim is actually plural for cherub. Now, when we think of cherubs or a cherub, what do we think of? A little, uh, little, little pudgy baby. That's right. Yeah. yeah, a little pudgy baby, but like the the halo and the wings, and like that is not at all uh, what it, what a cherub is in the scriptures. Cherubim is the plural of that, so it's cherubs or more than one, and there are these angelic beings in God's presence. I, I don't know if we'd say that they are angels. The word for angel is just the word for messenger. There seems to be a more specific heavenly being. Yeah, the, the first I, I believe the first reference to cherubim is in the Garden of Eden when man sins and he's cast out of the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> Verse 24 of Genesis 3 says, He drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Probably wasn't a little pudgy baby. <laughs> a more imposing figure there. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yes. All right, so that that's a good a, a description of what cherub is, right? Yeah, they're they're pictured in the Bible as almost this conglomeration of all the strongest, swiftest creatures on earth. They sometimes are pictured with four faces facing all directions, and it's like I, help me remember, it's like a lion and an eagle and an ox and a human, I believe, yeah. are the right. four faces. And of course, they can see like all around them. And they have these at least four wings um, and they're covering their bodies with two of them and they're flying with two of them and they're like burnished bronze. So they're just like, it's like 
it's hard to describe them exactly. And sometimes there's some differences in the in the description. And, and the differences are important. It's important to notice that. We have in Ezekiel and Revelation some differences, for example, in the number of wings and that kind of thing. And I think what that highlights is the fact that these are not literal descriptions or descriptions of the literal uh, beings that we're talking, of, talking about as they really are. These are descriptions in terms that man can relate to. If I see an ox, I think, wow, that's a, that's a strong animal. Um, if I see a lion, I see, wow, that's a majestic animal, a powerful animal. If I see an eagle, wow, that's a fast animal. That can cover a lot of territory quickly, those kinds of things. Uh, if I see a man, I think, well, that's smarter than the ox. Uh, well, sometimes. Uh, but uh, those things are supposed to communicate ideas it, the irony is we're, we're, God is communicating to us ideas of things that are beyond us, but how can you understand something that's beyond you other than in terms you're familiar with? So, so I think then when we see a description of these things uh, relating them to us in terms of human or earthly creatures and so on, we're not supposed to say that's exactly what they are any more than we're supposed to say this is exactly the number of wings they have when in one description it's this number and another description is that number. All right, so but back then to the question. So now we have a descriptive, uh, an idea of what these creatures represent. And you need, by the way, you can't get all of that information from one place in the scriptures. It doesn't come up and tell us what we're reading about the cherub, what they were. But throughout the scriptures and different revelation, God gives man the idea and the concept so that when he sees them, when you see them, when the priests see them on that, on that ark, there's quickly that connotation of, of what we're dealing with. But back to the thought, just because they are that way and just because he's there, I think you already covered it. We're not real, or they were not really worshiping them, nor were they worshiping God through them. Or they were learning something about God. Uh, in the in Ezekiel chapter one, God rides on this these cherubim, and the, the picture is that that is created as you read that description of God riding upon this these cherubim is God's ability to uh, exert His influence and in anywhere and know anything anywhere to move instantly from one place to another. All the eyes covering the wheels that are associated with these cherubim and then later on in Ezekiel we find that the eyes cover the backs and the wings of the cherubim the God's able ability to see everything so it's really not a picture of something here make a thing that looks like this and worship it it's a it's a graphic expression of the abilities attributes powers of God exactly now there is another question in that comment but before we get to it I want to tie that in with the second part of the question which has to do with the serpent and, and real quick before we leave that specific point i think it's interesting that god so often uses creatures the things that he's made to show his glory when god shows up at the end of the book of job what does he talk mostly about he talks mostly about animals yeah. and about how job doesn't have a clue what all god is doing with the creatures that he's made. And near the end of that, he talks about two great creatures. He's made Leviathan and Behemoth. And I think the point we're supposed to get from that, and this includes the cherubim, uh, the seraphim, uh, in Job chapter 41 and in verse 10, uh, God says this after referring to Leviathan. He says, no one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up 
Who then is he who can stand before me? Who is first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. If we're impressed with the creatures that serve God, how much more ought we to be impressed by the one who made them? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the bottom line. Mm -hmm. Now, going over to the serpent. This is a little different than the cherub, right? The serpent involved when the fiery serpents came upon Israel uh, and killing them for the plague plague that was coming upon them. Numbers 21 is that passage. Yeah, okay, good. You got us there. Numbers 21. And the Lord says, you'll make a serp, uh, uh, I kept calling it a gold bronze, bronze, bronze or copper, either one of the two, depending on your translation. So it's a bronze serpent and that they were to look upon the serpent and live, right? Yeah. Now, I want to introduce the question coming in because it does relate. Yep. Not at first sound like it relates, but it does relate to us today. The question that came in is, is it wrong for people to wear a cross necklace or something along these lines? Yeah, there is a nice connection there with the story of the bronze serpent. So, so the story is this. The people of Israel out in the wilderness toward the end of the 40 years of wandering are once again complaining. Uh, they're, they're complaining about the food God's giving them, that kind of thing. And so God allows these, or sends these fiery serpents that are biting the people, and, and it's causing the people to die. And so they cry out, oh, we're sorry. You know, Moses intercede for us. Moses does. And, and so God says, okay, um, Moses, make a bronze serpent. And I'll read it. The Lord said, this is Numbers 21.8. Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. It's an odd story. A lot of the stories in the Old Testament are odd until you understand what it's about. And this is not just about what happened in the wilderness. In John chapter 3, and I believe it's verse 14 and 15, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and he alludes to this story. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm going to read it, John chapter 3, and I'm going to turn to verse 14 and 15. And it says, I thought I was there, I'm not. Here we go. As Moses, this is Jesus speaking, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes may in him have eternal life. Think about the parallel. What, why does Jesus compare himself to the serpent that Moses lifted up? In the Old Testament, people were being bitten by something that was leading to death, and they were to look to the representation of that on the standard. They were being bitten by snakes. They're going to look at a snake, and they're going to be saved from death. So wait a minute. Let me let me stop. So you're saying that the serpent that's on Moses' staff is representing the very thing that's killing them? Yeah, yeah. And so now, what 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 does that have to do with us? Well, we are being bitten by something that is resulting in death, and and that's sin. The wages of sin is death. And we look to Jesus on the cross, but what is Jesus on the cross but the embodiment of our sin? He was made to be sin, 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 5 and verse 20, 21, 22. Um, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Is that why he became a curse? Yeah. He was, he was hung, any man that hangs on a tree is considered a curse. God himself cursing him. 
Yeah, so here is, here is our sin being punished in Jesus on the cross, and we look to Jesus on the cross, and we're saved from the death that resulted from the sting or the bite of sin. And so Jesus makes the connection in John chapter 3. So first of all, rather than the bronze serpent being a story about uh, a graven image that people could worship, it was a story pointing forward to the sacrifice of Jesus that God is going to use to save us. Even so, the people were not to worship that graven image itself, and that leads us into, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Uh, so what's the rest of the story? So you're relating this snake to Jesus on the cross, and people would then take... Wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you saying then if the Israelites took made a snake and hung it around their neck afterwards, that wouldn't have been proper? Yeah, if the Israelites had taken the snake and thought of it as something to worship itself, a good luck charm, hang it around your neck and you'll be protected from this and that and the other thing, they would have been superstitiously attributing powers to this image itself. Well, did they ever do that? So, yeah, they ended up doing something like that. Yeah, didn't it? Didn't he end up to take us there? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm forgetting where it is right at the moment, but Second I Kings, ended up where, 18. Where was that? Second Kings again. 18. Second Kings 18, that's right. Okay. Hezekiah's yeah. reign. Yeah, so this is a long time later. Yeah, that, that, that's a good observation. It, it was <clears throat> years before Christ in the wilderness when they made this bronze serpent. Now, Hezekiah, we're talking about something on the order of 730 years before Christ or so. And and uh, maybe a little later. But anyway, we're, we're talking nearly a, a, a jump forward in time of 700 years, 650 years, something like that. But that well, not not from the years of the serpent incident, but of this incident in Second Kings. From the years of the serpent incident to the time of Hezekiah, we're talking about 650 to 700 years. Oh, okay. Okay. And so, Stephen, you've got it there, Second Kings 18, and we'll Second, start in verse 3. Yeah, Second Kings 18, 3. This is talking about Hezekiah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, that would have been one of the idols. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah. So, so... He's getting rid of all these idols, and in the process of getting rid of all these idols, it tells us he tore this thing up because they had turned it into an idol. They were worshiping it rather than the God in whom they were supposed to be placing their faith. Well, what if they were just what if they were just using it as a representation to God? Well, it says that they were make they made burnt offerings to it. Well, what I'm, I'm saying is, what's, what about those Jews that didn't make the burnt offerings? Maybe there were some Jews that just used it as a rep representation to get to God. Well, here's where, here's where you're trying to get me to go, Drew. I think, you, of course, what we're talking about is the caller's or the viewer's question about wearing crosses around the neck. And there is a connection here because ultimately that bronze serpent represents Jesus and Jesus dies on the cross. And, and in the same way that the Israelites ended up putting their, their uh, trust in the bronze serpent itself rather than the God that made it, we can get superstitious about the image of the cross on which Jesus died. 
and you can hold up a silver cross to ward off the vampires. Right. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's kind of the same thing. I'm not willing to go so far as to say that anytime somebody uses the symbol of a cross in a religious context, that that's necessarily idolatry. I'll put a timeline often on the whiteboard or in one of my PowerPoint presentations of the whole Bible and to represent the idea of all of this culminating in Jesus down at the right end of the timeline. I'll have a cross there. Um, but there is a, a point to be made here about the idea of wearing a, a cross around my neck and thinking somehow that makes me holy or somehow that's going to protect me from evils. That's kind of the same thing the Israelites did. Scott, you're you're able to talk now. We're able to hear you. Are you able to join us? Yeah, I've, I've had an array of technical difficulties. Sorry, but I, I'm finally here. Yeah, and if we consider two ends of a spectrum, then it might help us to think about where does something fall on that. Uh, like at one end, you said you'll be teaching a lesson and you'll draw a cross up on the board. We'll put a cross on our PowerPoints. Um, if, if I've got a, a T-shirt that has a scripture on it, I'm not worshiping that scripture or something and if it brings up conversation great if it happens beside the scripture have a cross i don't think that would necessarily be wrong but you 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 get on the other end of the spectrum is for instance this one time at a uh, catholic bookstore i bought a scapular and it had the promise of mary's promise at fatima and for 15 cents, it's in my desk drawer somewhere, for 15 cents, I got it, and it says, nobody who dies wearing this scapular will suffer eternal fire. Our Lady of Fatima's promise. Wow. So it's like 15, yeah, it's better than an airbag. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's put that on and go. So if a person is using the cross in a sense of, uh, if they're calling people's attention and reminding or something, that could be helpful in one way. If they're using it in a sense of, oh, this makes me feel closer or better, you know, to have this close here, then we're then we're getting over into the the kind of thing that uh, they were doing with the serpent. Yeah. So uh, to boil it all down, it sounds like a lot of it has to do with how we're regarding the image in question, whether it's a, a statue or whether it's an image of the cross or something like that. Because clearly in the Old Testament, there were images and there was a way in which those images were to be used. They were to be a reminder of characteristics of God, uh, of his power and authority. Um, but they weren't to be worshipped in and of themselves. They weren't to be treated kind of as a good luck charm. And don't we see the Israelites doing that in the Old Testament event? They'll bring the Ark of God with them into battle when they're not necessarily supposed to. And then they're getting captured and, you know, going through Philistia and all that. And they, they treat the temple the same way sometimes. It's like, oh, we got the temple of God. We God's never going to hurt us because we've got the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And God lets the enemies come in and wipe them out. Here's a thought. What about the Lord's Supper? The emblems of the Lord's Supper are a memorial to remind us of his blood and of his body. Because look at the words of Jesus. He said, this do in memory of me. But I had a friend who she would go to one church to take the Lord's Supper, go to another church to take the Lord's Supper there, because she said, I need as much of the blood as I can get. So she kind of had 
you know, a, a, a superstitious concept uh, of, about that itself. Whereas what that is, is, is a memorial to call our attention to and remind us of something. We're, well, Scott, we didn't mean to distract you there, but Jeff and I were laughing because your audio is just coming in very funny. <laughs> oh, okay. And I don't know if the audience heard the same thing we heard, but that did sound a little strange. Didn't it, Jeff? <laughs> I thought he was possessed. <laughs> yes, it did. It sounded like it was possessed. <laughs> yeah. So to come back to our original question, I, I, it sounds like from what we're saying, it, it doesn't sound like it, it would be like a sin in and of itself to, to wear a cross around your neck. It really depends on what your concept of that really is. Um, if it's just a reminder to you, I mean, again, sometimes it can be a conversation starter or things like that. Um, there wouldn't necessarily be anything wrong in and of itself with having a cross necklace or having a cross in your house. But we have to be so careful. Uh, that, that we don't let that become something more uh, or start to somehow start to regard this object as something holy in and of itself or that it, uh, you know, has some special power in and of itself. And, and we're, I think it's just human tendency is we like symbols. We like things uh, to represent certain things. And, uh, and so we just have to be on our guard. And, and you know what, let's just, let's just make this observation. The Old Testament was characterized by outward forms uh, teaching spiritual ideas. God was dealing with a, a people who themselves were defined outwardly and were not necessarily inwardly spiritually attuned to God's will. Um, so God is teaching concepts using outward forms. And then we come to the New Testament and we have a people who are inwardly defined, obedient from the heart, God's people, and we do not see the emphasis upon the outward forms. Not only do we not see a physical temple, not only do we not see an emphasis on burning incense and so on, there's just little emphasis upon uh, physical forms, outward forms, generally in the New Testament. They don't characterize God's people. Now, I'm not saying that there's never a time when you could have a physical representation. We've already said you could. But here's where we ought to go from this. Churches today can get back into the Old Testament mindset, and they can put all kinds of emphasis on imagery, um, whether it be crosses or, or whatever, in their meeting places and that kind of thing. Or they can put the emphasis upon serving God from the heart, worshiping God in spirit and in truth, the, the spiritual being the true or the real. And, uh, and, and if they put the emphasis on the latter, they're going to be more like what we read in the New Testament. So I think what you're saying then, Jeff, without putting words in your mouth, that everything we're seeing today in the religious world in general are things that are not in the New Testament, the very first century when the apostles were alive and that they were teaching, right? Let me give you an example. Um, one of the things that's become more uh, commonplace in the religious world, the Protestant world, and maybe the Roman Catholic world as well, and, and even among some churches that would say we're neither Catholic nor Protestant, we are just uh, Christians, is uh, quite an emphasis on branding and logos. Um, I don't see, I'm not going to say that it's wrong for a church's website to have some kind of artistic device that kind of makes it clear 
Uh, when you're at this web page and you see that, you know that this is associated with this congregation. But if we get to the point where we're putting all kinds of emphasis on those kinds of things, our mindset is more like the Old Testament people than the New Testament people. I, I like the term you use, branding. Yeah. And like all of a sudden, churches around the country who claim to be non-denominational will try to hold on to a brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I've seen uh, it with, with a local congregation where a word that has to do with the location or something else, and it, it just becomes singularly used over and over, and you, and you can kind of see a sense of pride and allegiance to, you know, this is that, our, that, yeah, yeah, and well, at at, at such such, we do this, and, and at such and such, um, and yeah, once you turn it into a, a branding thing, it, it begins to point the attention away from where it needs to point, and pointing in the wrong direction. Yeah, it's about us. It's, it's kind of interesting where you have these congregations, they exist in this little town or on this little street corner or whatever, and they get a name associated with that, and then they build a new meeting place across town or in a different city, and but they're going to still use that name because that's that's us. That's who we are. No, who we are is of Christ. And that's we're Christians. It. We're simply Christians, as they were first called Christians in Antioch. And, and, I, and again, please understand, those of you watching this, I'm not faulting at all identifying a group of Christians as the, the Christians in Gettysburg, the Church of Gettysburg or something like that. We see that in the New Testament. But let's not get so proud of our brand right. that all of a sudden we've got to carry that with us wherever we go and right. whether whether Christ gets to be a part of it or not is second place. I'm, I'm glad I'm glad. Hold on, Stephen, but I'm glad you clarified that yourself, Jeff, because I don't want you to start getting hate mail, email, or, or to start getting hate phone calls. We started last week at the end of the show to put up the screen that has contact information for uh-huh. Scott, Stephen and myself. And we're going to add you, Jeff, now that you're back with us. So because we are now doing these shows live. We're actually doing a live all the time, but these shows go now on the podcast system uh-huh. uh, th- through iTunes and through uh, <clears throat> Google play and other channels. And we're seeing hundreds of people now starting to download these shows. And so we're going to put the information on there. And I just brought that up there because Jeff, I'm glad you clarified yourself there. So you don't get hate calls. Let, let me give an illustration uh, of that, I'm going to change it to modify. But uh, I had a friend that was had been involved in a church that was named after a geographical location, and so I'll substitute in order in order to make it a little bit anonymous. Mountain, and but whenever you spell, you know, well at Mountain we do this, you know, well Mountain and and, and we've been doing this at Mountain, and well no at Mountain we, and it become you, you don't see that out of Paul, you know, flip eyes now, well, at river, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, it's uh, Philippi, it's the church, you know, uh, the saints at Philippi in Christ. And uh, it, where we put the emphasis is really, really important because it tends to show what we emphasize. Yeah. <laughs> okay, very good. Stephen, you were going to say something. Well, while we're talking, I'm going to put that, that, that closing screen on there. We've got a couple minutes left. While we have that up there, Stephen, I interrupted you. What were you going to say? Uh, So we had a question a few minutes ago that was kind of a follow-up to our previous discussion about the cross. And 
Uh, the same viewer asked, uh, I used to, or says, I, I used to have a friend who would pray every night to a cross necklace that she had hanging on her wall. And so that seems like, again, perhaps, I don't know everything that she had in her heart, but it appears in a situation like that, if you're praying to the necklace, that that symbol has become something more than just a symbol. Uh, And just really be careful to really guard against those attitudes of heart. Um, And that's what I think the Lord was warning against when he first gave that commandment to the Israelites and said, don't make these graven images to represent me. Yeah. And a final quick observation. Just notice the New Testament doesn't tell us anything about what Jesus looked like because that's mm. irrelevant. We do have the prophecy in Isaiah 53 pointing out he didn't look like much. But that's, you know, it's there. there's reasons why that's not important. Right. Well, yeah. guys, we had come to the uh, time frame here of the show. The question was very good. Or thank you for the viewer that asked the question. You guys Actually, we went into other areas that expound, uh, bounced off that question. I hope people that are watching can come up with more questions, more further questions about the topic. Go to the website, BibleQuest.tv. There's a form there you can fill out to ask more questions. You can give us a call at any time. If you have personal questions about, well, you see where we're located. If you live in the area and you want to talk to us about anything else, give us a call. Any other thoughts or comments, guys, before we put this to end? Noah, our new webcast engineer is going to be shutting it down. Guys? Yeah. Just th- thank you to everybody for tuning in. Thank you for your questions. Keep coming back to the Bible for answers. Uh, God's word is what we need. Amen. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.